That's one of the things that stuck with both of us is there is no normal reaction to an abnormal event like that. The taking of a human life is very, it should be a very abnormal event. So it meant more to me that these folks would take their own time, drop everything, and fly across the country or drive across the country, not only to help me, but to help my family. Deep rage that, you know, a man had tried to kill her husband and a man had tried to kill the father of her kids. Um, so we've got three kids now, and it's the, the thought of becoming a single parent and raising children because some less desirable human being had tried to kill him. Um, that's, it's deep. There's a, there, there's a, a, a well of emotion there. Um, and what do we do with that until we have somebody to process that with? And friends are great, but unless they're friends that have been through something similar to that, either military spouses or law enforcement spouses, they can't speak into that. Fugitive ended up shooting through the door and killing one of the task force officers and then jumped out a like second or third story window and got on a high-speed chase. Um, and they got him, you know, on the highway after a standoff. But uh, Jake was killed during that and we we would get we got that call so we were up there as fast as possible just dealing with all the blowout from that because he I want to say he had two kids you're listening to the ATO Bridge and Bead Divide podcast brought to you by the Assisi Officer Foundation since 1999 the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community And now we want to give them a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree. And we all make mistakes. But together we can grow. We can heal. And we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. Hello, ATO friends. I'm Joe King, and we're here with the amazing Misty Van Curen, and we have more ATO story time. Today's guest is a dear friend of mine. We go back years to work in drug houses in the streets of South Dallas. When he left to become a U.S. Marshal, I knew I lost an incredible co-worker and friend I could call any time, and he would come running. However, I was proud of him for starting a new journey in his career with the Marshals. He came on for episode three. And that's back when we had the crappy mics, and we didn't know what we were doing. We still don't know what we're doing now, but at least we have good mics. He is one of our top downloaded episodes. His story resonated with a lot of listeners, because I get feedback all the time from across the country. I said at the end of that episode, we may have him on for part two at some point. And here he is for part two. This guest has conducted hard target searches of every gas station residence, warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, and doghouse in that area. Fugitive fans will get that. U.S. Marshal Chris White, welcome back to the ATL stage. 
Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Misty. Welcome back. So, a lot's happened since you were here before. Um, how are you? Good. Good. This is the, uh, we're recording the week of Thanksgiving. Uh, it's actually the day before Thanksgiving. Um, we're so behind. Uh, who knows when this is going to come out, but I'm really excited because when we, we first had you on, we talked about so many things and, um, I really want to get into one line that you said and you kind of, and then I've had, I've had fans reach out talking about you're not alone. Okay. I want you to get into that, um, here in a bit, but you know, there's like another side of your story that nobody's heard because I wanted to get, get you back on. Then you start telling me about these cert and the critical, critical response team that you're a part of. And some of these other incidents that you didn't mention in your first episode. And I want you to get into those today if you can. Absolutely. So what have you been up to now since for a year and a half that we released your episode? Yeah. So when I came, when I came on the first time, I was still a team leader for the Gulf Coast Regional Fugitive Task Force. We were based in Jackson, Mississippi. We covered um, the majority of the central portion of the state uh, about, we were in Jackson, but it was anywhere all the way to the Louisiana line to the west, all the way to the Alabama line to the east, and then about an hour to an hour and a half north and south. So we had a large geographical area. Um, Jackson, Mississippi is a, actually, it's a city that's decreasing in population over the last probably 20 years. Right now it sits around 165,000 people, and they average, they've been averaging the last few years 150 homicides a year. So statistically, if they reported their data to the FBI, UCR, they'd be probably number one or two. Um, but they don't, so they don't get a lot of the press, but it is an exceedingly violent city. Um, we worked a lot of homicide warrants and a lot of violent crime warrants. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I loved it. Uh, it was probably the best six years of my career. And then um, back in February, after right, it coincided with the birth of our third child. I took an opportunity um, that I'd kind of been kicking the can on. I got to a point where I couldn't kick the can anymore um, and got a great opportunity uh, to go over to the U.S. Marshals uh, TOG unit, which is a technical operations group. And I'm a senior inspector uh, investigator over there. And what I do, kind of simplifying it, um, I... I, if I would tell a civilian, I'd tell them that I'm a major case consultant. There's a regional task force out there. I cover about six of their offices, so they've all got fugitive teams. And on major cases, I'll come in, I'll consult, I'll do what I can um, from my office. And then about 50% of the time, I'll be you know, going to assist them physically um, with whatever their needs are to help them kind of um, catch the folks they're looking for. Is it more of a um, lower speed than you're used to, or is it? It's just more. You said it's technical. It sounds is it tedious? It's yeah. It's 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 a great cerebral activity. Um, I really get to go on some of the cases. I really get to go in depth. Um, kind of use um, investigative techniques um, and some technology that uh, allows you to resolve some of these really hard cases. Um, but people from, you know, I've never worked the eastern seaboard part. People are going back and forth to 
Atlanta, D.C., Florida. We get a lot in Florida. So we get to, you know, assist with some of these cool high-priority cases um, where these these guys are really bad dudes, you know, traveling all over. Um, had some go back and forth to Texas, like Kurt. I've talked with Kurt out here. Um, and some of the other guys have gotten cases from Mississippi, from all over. So it's, it's, it's a very – at the stage I'm at in my career, it's a great opportunity um, – to not be to do something cerebral, but not be like the first guy or the second, third guy going in the house anymore. You've had enough of that. I mean, you really. I from, love it. Yeah, um, of course. With the with the changing political environment, um, the liability and stress of being the hands-on enforcement guy, it hasn't lost its luster. I'm just increasingly concerned being the sole provider for three young kids that I want to make sure that I'm there and able to provide for them. Yes. I, you know, I got your new outline and I want you to tell the listener what cert is and, and uh, just give them a synopsis of it and, and how you got involved with that. Yeah, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm extremely well-versed in the history of the cert program. The cert program is a critical incidents response team is a great program the the u.s marshals um started um and what they do is whenever there's a critical incident which could be you know there's there's a sliding not a sliding scale but there's a variety of things they do um it could be a line of duty death which is obviously like pretty much the worst you can have um to a suicide to like if one of the um, one of the employees, anywhere from a deputy to, you know, an admin to anyone that works for the service has like the death of a young child or something traumatic there. Uh, we, you know, we've got folks that work within the court system that are marshals contract employees that, you know, have gotten killed in car wrecks or, you know, one of their kids has gotten seriously hurt or killed. We go out and it's, it's essentially like peer counseling. Um, we're not, you know, I'm not a medical professional. Um, but they put us through training to do peer counseling um, and just try the best we can to assist going through there and navigate what that looks like. Um, everybody on the team should have gone through something. You know, there's an application process and they, they, they apply and they go through what qualifies them or what gives them the... Um, kind of background to be effective in that space. Um, there's some people that have been through some incredibly traumatic things, um, a variety, you know, I, I had some shootings, so that gave me a perspective. Uh, but there's a, a wide swath of people that have done different things that qualify them to be able to speak into people's lives when they're going through some of these horrific situations. Is some of it like that is the critical incidents, the shootings, the one that makes the news and where you take a life. I mean, are some of the people that are on that, that support team or do they have the, they dealt with their own demons? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I don't want to go into extreme details, but there's some guys that have had, you know, they've had like the loss of a child through a, a violent encounter. Um, you know, they've, there's people that have been shot themselves. There's people that have lost family members. There's people, you know, that have gone through some really traumatic stuff. And, you know, looking back on that, like I consider my, the, the situations I've had, I consider myself lucky that I've 
not had to experience some of the horrible traumatic things that they've gone through that have qualified them to go onto that team and help other people. But it's still, I wouldn't long for it myself. So you say it's a, is it a volunteer type? So they, it's people, the peers that want to come out and want to be a part of this, they help their other peers. Do they have to, they go, they go through an application process? Yeah, it's a hundred percent volunteer. Um, when I, I can only speak to when I got on, um, but when I got on, you would, they do like the, you know, kind of like Dallas would do the, the mass email where it says, Hey, we've got this opportunity. Um, people would apply, you'd put in an application. It would have to be signed off on by your, you know, command staff. Um, and you would do the application. There'd be interviews. There'd be a, a kind of like a panel um, of people already in the program that would they'd meet and they'd talk about you know who they wanted. Um, you want to have a diverse representation, you know, of people that have been through diverse life experiences, diverse backgrounds, and they would get selected to go through that. Um, when I went on. I want to say the application process was probably six months. They met, um, they talked about who they wanted to choose, and then you would go to a training. I think my training was about a week long. I went out to Sacramento, California, and you would have people that would come in uh, that had been experienced, you know, peer support members as well as professionals that were in, the, you know, in that space. That that's what they do professionally. That trained us on peer counseling. You got a guy sitting here with a cauliflower ear. Mm. and veins coming out of his biceps and a jujitsu t-shirt i have to know why would you be a part of this program tell our listeners yeah and and that's actually one one of the things that i i love about the program and wanted to specific specifically commend them for after my first i had two shootings five months apart um that was i felt like when when i went through my shootings both the Dallas Police Department and the U.S. Marshal Service had done a pretty decent job preparing me mentally and emotionally and psychologically for what that would look like. Um, I don't think we used to do that back in the day, but I feel like people have really kind of embraced um, moving into that space and doing it effectively. So I didn't have, outside of the you know, immediate um, physiological response and psychological response and, and just all the worry that comes from the legal ramifications and going through a grand jury, you know, indictment and getting no build because you go through that each time you take a life. Um, it's incredibly stressful as well as nowadays you've got, you know, the major scrutiny in the media, um, worrying about the long-term legal ramifications being civilly sued, being, you know, the criminal ramifications if there's anything that, because not even good shootings can sometimes face criminal ramifications if you have an over-aggressive, you know, district attorney or folks that want to do things for political reasons. Um, so going through that, mine, mine was relatively tame. Both of mine were relatively tame. Um, but what people don't, by and large, talk about is when you go through a shooting like that, all the ancillary people that are affected, uh, as far as your family, your kids, your wife. Um, after my first shooting, my wife had not been prepared or equipped to go through something like that. They don't train wives. They don't train spouses. They don't train kids what it looks like when their dad um, has to take a life or has something traumatic like that happen where they're, you know, thankfully my news, my, my name wasn't in the news on either of those, but, you know, on the first one, um, 
my wife was working and got a call from one of my coworkers and one of my friends that said like, Hey, your husband's been in a shooting. Um, he's okay. But that's, that's pretty much actually the first time she found out it was, she used to get news alerts on her phone. Um, we stopped that, but she saw that like there was a shooting with the U S marshals, one person shot and that's, that's it. And then she gets a call from one of my coworkers and friends It says, like, hey, your husband's in a shooting. So she doesn't know. And immediately it's, like, level 10. My husband's been shot. Um, I don't know what's going on there. And that calmed down. um, But she still got all of this emotional and psychological response to my husband's been in a shooting. I don't know what the legal ramifications are going to be like. I don't know what the long-term ramifications are. Um, What do I do with all of this stuff that just got piled on me? Um, so the, the cert team came out and they did a debrief. Um, and I was so paranoid when they came out, I wouldn't talk to them until after I'd gone and given my statement to the sheriff's department. Cause the Harris County sheriff's department investigated my first shooting. Um, I wouldn't talk to anybody until that was done with my lawyer. Um, but they came out a day or two after and we met with them and they took the time to counsel my wife and go through everything that she could possibly um, feel and experience in light of, you know, what both of us had gone through and normalized everything for her. You know, this is what's going to, this is what you can expect. These are all these things you're feeling and experience, experiencing are normal reactions to a abnormal event. Um, that's one of the things that stuck with both of us is there is no normal reaction to an abnormal event like that. The taking of a human life is a very, it should be a very abnormal event. So it meant more to me that these folks would take their own time, drop everything and fly across the country or drive across the country, not only to help me, but to help my family. Um, That meant, that was what got me in the program was that, you know, this, uh, it was a male and female deputy. One was, uh, one was up in Sherman. We were down in Houston at the time. One was up in Sherman and one came in from Louisiana and counseled both of us. Um, but they, they took the time to care for and love my wife going through that experience. That's amazing. No, it is. And, and yeah. that's what inspired you to be a part of, a part of this team. A hundred percent. If those the, the the two of them hadn't done that for my wife. I don't think that that was the, the catalyst that got me involved. Let me ask you this. So for years in DPD and I would imagine all law enforcement across the country that whenever, whenever there's an officer involved shooting, there is a, just kind of go through a check off the box. Remember Misty, go talk to Dr. Al, mm-hmm. uh, someone to be at that had a, you know, basically a monopoly on the Dallas police officers. When you get into a shooting and you take a life, which is abnormal, and you just go, you got to go see the psych doc. You have to go do that. You have to do all these other steps. And then everything else kind of plays out, right? Whether it's a good shooting or a questionable shooting, there is a process that's got to play out. But my experiences and officers and, you know, friends that I've, I've actually been with and they've been in shootings that they looked at that part as just checking a box and getting through it. That way they can get back to work and normalize it was it did you kind of see that yourself before you 
before then you saw a different side of them actually helping your spouse yeah i'd I'd been friends with folks that had gone through shootings before um going through it is a unique experience like and i kind of talked about this on the first episode Mm -hmm. i didn't have a ton of uh, emotional or psychological baggage with it i was very lucky that both of my shootings were cut and dry um there was no no gray area legally, professionally, anything like that. You know, my shootings were. Um, I was lucky that there weren't any. There wasn't any negativity associated with the circumstances or anything questionable. Any legal, you know, any legal uh, issues that arose out of those. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're not. You can be as prepared as possible psychologically and emotionally to go through something like that. But as well as just preparing for the event itself, but until you go through something like that, you don't really know if you're going to rise to the occasion. And then on the on the backside of it, how you're going to how you're going to navigate that. From my experience, officers need support at home, and like he said, I don't think that you can get that support at home if if your spouse doesn't have an understanding, a foundation to even start to understand. And so what I'm hearing is this team actively actively pursued your spouse and was part of the they were they were included as part of the recovery process. Yes, absolutely. And you know, for, as far as the probably both of the shootings, um but my I can speak for my wife in this area and say that she had a deep rage that you know, a man had tried to kill her husband and a man had tried to kill the father of her kids. Um, so we've got three kids now and it's the, the thought of becoming a single parent and raising children because some less desirable human being had tried to kill him. Um, that's, it's deep. There's a, there, there was a, a, a well of emotion there. Um, and what do we do with that? until we have somebody to process that with. And friends are great, but unless they're friends that have been through something similar to that, either military spouses or law enforcement spouses, they can't speak into that. Uh, and our folks in the, in the church we were in were great at that, but there's still, there's still a um, gap, of, gap of knowledge and knowing exactly what that feels like. I could be wrong, but do we include spouses now? Well, that's new. It, the new the new wellness unit. We were doing something for the families, and uh, and we we were trying to figure out how to incorporate them into the department. It's it, this is all new, and actually, what CERT does, I'm going to be trying. I'm going to try to pick apart, pick take, steal some of y'all's stuff because this is good. Of going out, I don't believe that the initial response has ever been, and I don't think it's still going on with the spouse. It, that's kind of like you go home and take care of your family as opposed to professionals that are, that that are uh, that are peers that can actually do it and help because I would imagine somebody that's in a shooting and, and Chris yours mentally you're super mentally tough but you're probably not in a good headspace to you're juggling with what just happened and what you just did and, and um, the close call you just had to go home and whether you know it or not be 100 percent equipped to 
take care of the family and and maybe in a way that a somebody that's trained or a professional. Yeah, could. I think most most law enforcement when they go through something like that, and this is a broad generalization, but they compartmentalize. We're very good as cops of compartmentalizing and walling off, and you know we'll let our family into a little bit of it, but you don't let them into sure. everything because it's I mean it's a weird space that we operate in. Well, they're already scared anyway, and they're nervous about any time you walk out that door, you may not return, and you don't want, you try to tamp that down, you try to, you're trying to minimize what you do, I've done it, and just, you don't want to tell all the details of a story, because that's going to be on their mind, and their minds are uh, very unique, they can just, you know, you can imagine a lot, if you you have bits and pieces of of a story, and you can fill in the blanks, good or bad, either way. One of way. the things that they that the service does that's really excellent, and they don't do it on everyone, but they'll do it if, if the situation calls for it, is if you have a shooting where you know multiple people were involved in the response, they'll get the wives together in kind of like a, a group debrief and bring all the wives, the spouses, not just wives, the spouses in, um, and have a group debrief with them so they get to meet the other spouses if they haven't met them yet. And it forms this kind of uh, community of we're going through this together. So all of a sudden, instead of just one spouse being by themselves, they've got you know maybe three or four other spouses there that if they haven't had a relationship with them prior, they can form one there so that as they you know navigate this traumatic event, they can do it together. Oh, that that goes back to your your statement. You're not alone in this, and that's that's great. And I know the police association, uh, DPA, we they have a really strong spouses group. They're the ones that that organize a lot of the events, and they work together, and they and they form friendships just because of this group. And that's probably important. So, Misty, this past Saturday when we did a recording, and I got called in to go upstairs and stuff. That was a unique. That was a different, unique type deal. But starting off, I ha- I have been in contact with the spouse on this deal and and that person's uh, pastor too. So it is it is all new and uncharted. But I think we should formalize something as a department to what the U.S. Marshals does with the spouses. Because you're there, you got to have a strong base at home and and uh, put their mind at ease the best they can. Because honestly, these days you get into a shooting, you don't know what's going to happen, how it's going to unfold, or how it's going to be perceived and, uh, and projected in the yeah, news. Yeah, because you know our our family, unless they've been in the law enforcement space or military space, they don't understand, uh, and they can't understand. So having a, kind of a network of spouses, or at least one or two other ladies, you know, ladies or men um, that they can speak with and kind of bounce stuff off and go through together. You know, we're we're lucky that. She's formed some great friendships over the years, but it's absolutely critical to have those. It normalizes that, you know, like we've talked about before, you're not going through this alone. There's, there's people you can speak with. You have a, a on your list here, you have a, a TFO shooting response. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so one of the call-outs... Um, one of the call outs I went on and the way that we organized our program was there was four teams. Uh, each team would be primary for a month and you'd have a backup team. Uh, so three times a year, your team would be the primary for whatever would happen across the nation. Um, and you would, you know, if you were available, you were expected to be available, but if you were available to go, you were usually 
the event would happen in anywhere from six to 12 hours. You're on a plane, you're driving, you know, you're getting there. Um, some of them are, if it's a line of duty death, you're getting there, like you're going right away. Um, so you generally, when you were on call for the month, have a bag packed and just be, be ready to go at least enough for a night or two, um, to get wherever, God forbid there was a line of duty death. Um, so this one, uh, talking about the, the Jacob Keltner shooting was up in Rockford, Illinois. Uh, Jacob Keltner, uh, was a task force officer, TFO's task force officer up in the, um, Great Lakes task force, which is the regional task force up around Chicago, um, Illinois going into Indy. And Jake was out on a, I can't remember what they, what they were looking for the guy for. I don't think it, it I don't believe it was a murder uh, and they had tracked the guy down to a hotel room got a team out there and fugitive ended up shooting through the door and killing one of the task force officers and then jumped out a like second or third story window and got on a high-speed chase um, and they got him you know on the highway after a standoff but uh, Jake was killed during that and we we would get we got that call and within a few hours, you're traveling up to, um, it was outside of Chicago, about an hour in the suburbs in Rockford, Illinois. So we were up there as fast as possible, just dealing with all the blowout from that. Cause he, I want to say he had two kids. He's got a wife, a spouse that's lost her husband. Um, you've got multiple offices affected. You've got a team of TFOs and deputy marshals that are all affected by that. And just the absolute worst situation that you could think of um and so we're going through we're going through that and we're trying to navigate peer support trying to meet with everybody that was you know actively out on the scene trying to meet with their spouses and loved ones um trying to handle just as much of a problem as the guys that wanted to be there that weren't there um because there's survivor guilt in a situation like that you know, and a, a lot of those um, task force officers, they're all naturally going to second guess, what if I had done something different? Um, there's survivor's guilt with that. It's, it's massive. And, you know, people talk about it a little, but it's an awful thing, um, as well as just, just going through the grieving process there, arranging a funeral, dealing with, you know, the financial ramifications of I've lost a husband and, you know, we got to get a funeral. We've got to take care of kids. We've got to take care of this family. There's so much there that needs help. You have your TFO versus the deputy funeral prep. How does that look? Yeah. So, um, when it, when it, Deputy Marshal, as you know, a full-time government employee, uh, is killed. There's a there's a specific, there's like an SOP almost, a, you know, a standard procedure for what that looks like. And it is, I mean, it is unfortunately a smoothly oiled machine. Um, but when you've got a task force officer, like it or not, they're essentially considered almost like a contract employee because they, they belong to their the partner agency. They belong to the sheriff's department or PD or, you know, state level agency, but they're assigned full time to the task force. So you've got um, the federal agency won't cover, they can't cover everything that they would cover with, you know, a, a line of duty death. So it's you, when you're up there doing this response, you are going to, you are going to give them um, everything you can. You're going to figure it out. Um, but 
until they've got a program now called IMT, which is an incident management team that runs a lot of the logistics of the funerals, but they won't be, they're not as involved in a TFO funeral. So it's, we're going to get the bagpipes. We're going to get the flyover. We're going to get, you know, if they were former military, the honor guard response. And a lot of the time it's on us to figure out how we're going to do that. Like we are going to honor the family in every way possible. And a lot of it is just figuring out how we're going to do that. And thankfully, a lot of these people on the teams have established relationships with, you know, honor guard units. Um, I've seen them get helicopter plane flyovers. I've seen them get bagpipers that'll come in like I've seen, you know, some of the bagpipers just pick up bags and go on a moment's notice, you know, and just get there to, to show the respect and honor that you know, the, the victim deserves. Chris, can you, uh, can you talk about Tony a little bit? Yeah. So when I was up there, um, a lot of cops, um, are very stoic individuals. You know, you come into an environment like that and it's hard to build relationships and it's hard to build rapport with these guys that you don't know, because when something like that goes on, we tend to wall ourselves off and hey, the only people I'm going to let into this space are the people that I know and I built credibility with. Um, I'm not going to open up, especially as law enforcement, I'm not going to open up to this guy that's up here to, you know, part of the hug squad to give me, you know, to make me feel better about this situation that we're not going to feel better about. Um, so when I went up on that response, um, you know, you met with some of these guys initially and a lot of them are walled off. And then, you know, I had talked to this guy once or twice and introduced myself to him. And, you know, every time it's, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay. You know, I don't really have anything to talk to you about. If I need to talk to you, I'll come find you. Um, so we're up there in Rockford and it's, it's cold. Um, it's a cold day. And, you know, I was living in Mississippi at the time, so I'm freezing. Um, didn't bring, you know, the appropriate uh, attire for a funeral in heading into, you know, the colder time in the Chicago area. And I'd established, I'd talked to this guy a little bit, uh, not a ton. And he kind of comes out of nowhere and just gives me a big hug. And he's like, you know, I talked to some guys about you. I guess he made phone calls, um, talked to some guys about you and they vouched for you and they said, you're all right. Um, and he, you know, really, just opened up to me um, to, to the level that it's really hard for a lot of us to do, especially with somebody you don't know. And we talked outside that funeral for probably an hour. Um, I've kept in touch with him since then. And we talked, uh, you know, a lot over the, the few days there, but this, this guy was an absolute rock star. He was a retired TFO. Um, the guy is awesome. He was essentially like a mentor to Jake, um, really old school, great, you know, operator, um, guy that had been on the task force before. And he carried the weight of, you know, I could have trained him better. I could have done something to prevent this from happening. He knew the family well. Um, it's like, you know, when you train, when you train somebody and then you lose them to a violent encounter like that, what could I have done differently? And he carried the weight of that. And it was just brutal. Um, so we talked a lot and just seeing that you can be there and step into that space and 
you're not really doing anything. They're doing all the work, but you're just there to listen. Um, You're there to take it on. And it's so, you know, we'll talk about that later, but it's just so weighty. Like you just get to take stuff that they need to put down. Like they're carrying these, you know, hundred pound suitcases and they just need to put them down on somebody. And if you can come in there for, you know, an hour or a week or just a little bit of time and just take that load off them so they can they can just dump it just for just so they could go to the funeral. Just so they can go honor them without, you know, ma- you know, going through what they're they're going through it, but you can just take some of that weight off them for a little bit. It's just so it's amazing to be there for that and to just help them. Um and like I said, you're not doing anything, but you you get to be a part of it. I would imagine as a as somebody that's a mentor to somebody or a trainer to somebody, or you, you almost feel like you're having to bury a a, a kid, yeah. one one of your one of your one of your own. The spouse, uh, and we'll we'll read the letter from her in a minute. He knew the the spouse, and he knew the kids. So it's like you're watching this guy that you see yourself in your trainees and you see you know what they can become you want them to get all the good that you had out of your career without any of the bad and then something like that happens and it just gets destroyed in in a in the span of a second and then you're walking through the rubble that's created from that it's it's awful so you mentioned a letter uh from uh, the wife can um can you read that yeah, for the I, listener I, this letter came out while we were up there on the response and it's just i'm gonna try and make it through this without losing my mind but it is just it it is um a letter his wife becky wrote um within the you know the the days after the event and it's just very powerful um so i'll try to read it the best i can this is from Becky Keltner, uh, Jacob Keltner's wife. I'm writing this letter because my husband, Jacob Keltner, should be remembered not as another statistic, but as a man, a great man, who sacrificed his life to protect others. Jake is the love of my life. We met at Western Illinois University in January 2004 and were inseparable. We married in 2007, and soon after I got a teaching job, and we both focused on our careers doing what we love. In 2012, we were overjoyed to add Caleb, who is going to be president someday, to our family, and then Carson, my fiery redhead, blessed us in 2014. Jake and I agreed that I would leave teaching to dedicate all of my time to raise our boys, and it has been the best time of my life in our marriage. We loved each other fiercely. He was a tough guy, but a secret sweetheart. He surprised me with the best gifts, nights out, and heartfelt notes. He would do things he hated with me, like seeing a ballet, because he knew how much I loved it. He supported every endeavor I ever took on, and was there for me every second when my mom recently passed away. I was so lucky to have found a love so good and a man worth spending my life with. He was a diehard Chicago Cubs fan with me, and we almost died watching the 2016 World Series together. He loved adventure. He would try anything, bungee jumping, ziplining, whitewater rafting, and more with a huge smile on his face. Some of those he made me do with him, and he would hold my hand the whole time. He was brave, and he made me braver. My husband was a cop's cop. He loved everything about his job and looked forward to going to work every day. He was a true patriot who wanted to protect the people of this country, so I knew when he was selected for a position on the U.S. Marshal's Fugitive Task Force, 
I couldn't have stopped him from taking the job if I tried. I knew it was dangerous, but he was smart, strong, and great at what he did. I knew he would protect his fellow officers like he protected our family. Then I received the one phone call every police officer's wife has nightmares about. Only this time the nightmare was real. Now I find myself a 33-year-old widow, a mother of two young boys who no longer have their daddy. It feels unreal. It's unfair. I have screamed, I have cried, and nothing can make this better. He was an amazing dad. He always found ways to have fun with the boys. The night before he died, he was teaching them how to catch and throw and get ready for Little League. He built forts and set up family movie nights and boys' nights with the kids. We spent our summers relaxing and swimming in the pool. Deemed the baby whisperer, he was the only one who could get Carson to stop crying as a baby by singing to him. Telling my children he was taken from us was the worst moment of my life. They are innocent and pure and certainly do not deserve this. They will never know their daddy like they deserve. They won't know him as a jokester. They won't know his contagious smile and his infectious laugh. He was taken from them far too soon. Being a cop's wife is not easy. It's long days and nights where you don't know when they're coming home. It's the constant worry that something will happen to them. It's keeping the kids quiet when daddy needs to sleep for a few hours. It's going to events alone because they have to work, and him always having to look over his shoulder when we're out together. But I am so proud of him. He wanted to make the world a better place, and he did make it a better place for my family. He was my rock. He supported me through thick and thin. He was my everything, and we didn't have enough time. I need him, and I don't know how I'm going to keep on going without him. I would give anything for one more hug, one more I love you, or one more joke from the man I love so much. There are no words to sum up a man who meant so much to me and to so many others. My only wish was to have a world where we stop hating each other. I'm so overwhelmed with the support I've been given from people like him everywhere these past few days. I see you. You were good, just like my husband was. I will keep that in my heart forever. No matter who you are, every person has a story and people who love them. Every person has hopes and dreams. We need to accept and thrive on our differences. It's what our country was built on. It's what Jacob believed in, even after everything he had seen. It's what I believe in. He saw the worst of the worst every day, but still had so much love in his heart. He was true and loyal. We all need to show each other love, lift each other up. It's the only way to stop this unconscionable madness. A letter from Becky Kellner. <clears throat> Thanks, Chris, for reading that. I'm glad we don't have a video going. Man, that is incredible and heartbreaking. So, hang on, listeners, we're trying to gather ourselves I think, into I think that. <laughs> what you you take from this is he clearly had support at home. And I think some of these officers who are involved in incidents that do go home, and I've seen it with a close friend, wasn't supported by their spouse because they didn't understand. And um, when you take a human life, sometimes there's judgment because they don't understand. And I think um, the move forward here is t I think these spouses have to be involved for, to allow the the officer or the marshal or whomever to heal. Yeah, she um, she clearly understood and knew what he represented and what he wanted to be. And 
it's a huge loss of life. I mean, it's just the ripple effect. Sorry, listeners. I mean, and that's just one of your his responses on that on that team. Yeah. And that's heavy. That's heavy. It's it still is heavy. It always will be. But it's it it actually shows the need though for a team like this that um, whether it's a peer support team or a wellness unit or a, it it should be ever evolving because what you just described and the response that CERT does incorporating the families that right there is that is a that is a testimony to why families have to be incorporated into these programs and not just the involved. He he said key words that um. Tony opened up to you and I, I think the selection process for these groups these support these support groups is crucial just like a selection process in SWAT or anywhere else and he did his homework on you and he found out that um, you've been in it yeah one of the one of the great things about that and I actually want to touch on something come back to something in a second but um, I'm I'm not a particularly, um, like, huggable, you know, outgoing well of personality and um, emotion. Like, I'm fairly stoic, um, and I'm not I'm not extroverted. Um, but having people from different walks of life that have done different things. Um, allow them to step into, you know, a space where you need credibility. Um, having gone through that, I mean, I, I have lost track of the amount of law enforcement funerals I've gone to. Um, I've had people close to me that have gotten killed. Um, and just having that credibility, but then also having done that job, um, builds, builds that credibility. And then speaking on that and coming back to the other thing, we've got some, amazing people on that program i can think of um one one lady lynn um who is a law enforcement spouse she's a marsh service con well, she wasn't she retired she's a marsh service employee um but she is in an administrative role she's also married to a deputy and she is on the team and able to go in and speak to that space with the spouses and have the credibility of having been on that program, but also being married to a law enforcement officer. And she's able to go out there and she is, I call her the rock star because she's just like Texas through and through. She's got the, the big blonde hair and the bedazzled jeans and she'll show up there and just be able to love on the families. Like I could never do because she's got, you know, the credibility of being a law enforcement spouse and knowing what that looks like. And she's able to able to navigate some of the spaces with the families where she is just an absolute rock star. Yeah, I have um, everybody deals with something in their own way and their strength and everybody has their strength and weakness. My weakness is seeing other people's pain. I have a hard time seeing them react to loss. That's what really gets me doing certain things, seeing certain incidents, seeing the gruesome side of humanity that doesn't affect me as much as seeing what's left behind. Yeah. And that's one thing that is the hardest part, but an amazing part of that program is with Tony. It's like, I've got this big bear of a man who's not going to show emotion like this and he's showing it. And I didn't have it together. I lost it. Like he and I were both in the parking lot of the funeral, just crying like little girls. Um, but that's what he needed in that moment. And you know, 
I wasn't going to hold it together. It certainly wasn't a fabricated response. Like, I lost my mind. Um, yeah. It's okay. It's Absolutely. okay to lose it. I mean, it's it's. How are you going to hold it together you know, in a situation it, like that? Yeah. You shouldn't. If, if you hold it together in a situation like that, there's something wrong with you. Yeah. I want to get into another topic that's so prevalent in this profession is, uh, is suicide. I mean, um, San Antonio PD have been reaching out to them uh, over the last couple months they have uh they've had six suicides in in uh in a year there there is you know and there's a number of reasons there everybody struggles and i'm gonna go back to your line of you're not alone um can you talk about the one uh the deputy that uh we talked about uh off air yeah so we had a um this was a few years ago we had a a call out uh to the midwest i'm gonna be a little vague on this just because I don't want to put his name or, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, it's, I'm sure you could look it up, but I don't want to ever expose anything that was given to us in, you know, in confidence. Um, so there was a, a deputy up in the Midwest who was actually a supervisor at the time. And this dude was from, I didn't know him personally, but from my interaction with everybody up there was just a rock star. One of those guys that wanted to help everybody took everything on his shoulders. And I don't know, we'll never know the whys of why he committed suicide or, you know, the specific things that caused him to come to that moment. Um, but he ended up committing suicide and, and left just, you know, some of the, uh, I don't know that wreckage is the right word, but just left some of the, the after effects of that up there. And so it's a similar situation where that happens and you're going up there on a, you know, a few hours notice, um, with a bag packed and we're going to get through the initial response dealing with all the coworkers, you know, he didn't have a wife or kids, um, but dealing with all the, the coworkers and the friends and the family, um, going through, you know, caring for them and also arranging a funeral for that because we're going to give this guy a line of duty death funeral. Uh, We're going to show him the respect that he deserved um, and loving on the people that are left behind in a situation like that where there's no answers. There's absolutely no answers to why something like that happens. Um, And it's not in the program or now it's not our place to judge what would bring a person to that. You know, I've got my views on something like that but it's not it's not our when you step into something like that you're just there to be a sponge and you're there to take all this you know wreckage and emotion and be there for people that need you in in their moment um and that is way harder than like a stereotypical line of duty death just because i think when you navigate a line of duty death having been somebody and continuing to be somebody that you know that could happen to any day of the week when i go to work um you kind of prepare yourself for that because they were doing what they were supposed to do they're not supposed to be murdered but they're they're doing something that that is a exclusion that's not expected but is unfortunately reasonable when you go after dangerous people. Just like as a law enforcement officer, you could pull over a car and you don't know who's in that car. And it could, that could be your day. That could be the day where you're going to, you know, navigate this and you might win, you might lose, but it's a, a response. It's, it's an event that is, um, 
you know, it could be behind any one of those doors you knock on on any given day. Um, but with a suicide, you don't have those answers. All you have is questions. And you can, you think you might get answers and you might get some answers, but every answer you get, there's two more questions behind. Yeah, and there's really nobody that can answer those questions because the 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 one person that would have any idea of why that happened is no is right. no longer there. And, to tell and it. you don't know what. I think a lot of the times too, we you know it's it's a natural human response to place judgment on that situation, but we don't know what somebody was going through that caused them to take that response. Like we we, we can sit there and we can judge it, and I've been guilty of that too. But until you go through something like that, until you know what they're experiencing, you don't have the right to say that, oh, they shouldn't have done that. Like you, you could do that too if you were placed in the same circumstances. You know, any of us could do any of these horrible things if you're in that situation at the same time going through exactly what somebody's going through. Like it's not our place to judge that. No, not at all. Can you tell the listener the difference between line of duty death and yeah, suicide. Yeah. So with the line of duty death again, it's kind of like the, the the TFO line of duty death um like it or not, regardless of my personal opinions on whether or not the suicide was directly line of duty related because my goodness, the stresses that, you know, law enforcement go through on a daily basis like how do you not say that everything he was going through wasn't line of duty death related? But at the end of the day, you've got, you know, on some level, state, local, you know, federal, the agency may not be willing to take on the financial liability of what that looks like. Um, and like in this case of the city of Dallas, I mean, because there's a there is a difference in uh, from a, a yeah. finance standpoint. And it's not to be disparaging towards the department, because obviously, like the the line level folks want everything to be done every time. But, you know, you go up there on a response like that, and we're going to give him the line of duty death funeral, regardless of if that means coming out of our own pocket, if that means calling in favors, if that means, you know, navigating whatever you can do to get him everything so it's a line so the people that are left behind his family the co-workers the friends they see that response they see that honor um so it's it's a heavy lift to go up there and just be like we're gonna figure it figure this out we're gonna make it happen we're gonna call in every favor we can you know we're gonna beg steal borrow you know do whatever we can to just get this guy um the honor that he deserves that's that's amazing i i know that um Chief Garcia recently has tasked us with looking at departments across the uh, across Texas that that do give line of duty death for for suicide, and we're researching that right now. And um, I, I believe our department's going to have a response uh, on this uh, in 2023. We don't know how that looks, but there is a big difference in in uh, in you know uh, Chief Foy. He was ran the honor guard for years. And he understands, and the the honors that are given, and the cumulative effect of this job that weighs on us, and can put us in a dark place very easily. I want to talk about the uh, Keyworth line of death. Yeah, yeah. So this is talking about Jared Keyworth. Um, when I was in Mississippi, Jared is actually Jared did for us the job I do now. Um, he was a technical operations group senior inspector um so he covered he was based out of baton rouge uh but he 
his AOR was Louisiana, um, anywhere from New Orleans, Baton Rouge, uh, Lafayette, uh, Lake Charles down there, up into like Northwest Louisiana, Shreveport, uh, Rustin Monroe. He covered Mississippi. Um, he covered South Mississippi, and there was there's another guy down there who's who's awesome. Um, Jake's down there. Jake's a rock star. Jake is actually uh, somebody that like every. I feel like I call him once a day when I don't know what I'm doing. I'm like Jake, you got to help me, <laughs> help me with this. And he's, they were partners. Um, Jake was there first. He's still there. Uh, he's an absolute rock star. And Jared came in um, to be the second the second person there so he covered our aor he covered mississippi i'd talked to him a few times i knew him before um, he stepped into that role but he covered us so anytime you know we would have those cases it's like hey i need you know the next level of help and expertise on this he would be somebody that would come up and help us or i'd talk to him on the phone um jared was an absolute rock star he was probably the hardest one of the hardest workers i've ever met i mean he would He'd call me at inappropriate hours uh, just because he was so such a hard worker that he'd be up at like midnight, you know, get back up at four in the morning. And he, he would just didn't see that as abnormal. So he would call you and, you know, when you're in the task force team leader job, like your phone's on all the time. So if somebody calls you in the middle of the night, you're picking up. Um, he was an absolute rock star. And he was up there in the Jackson, Mississippi area, um, not working one of our cases, but working another team's case. And he went up and resolved one of their cases on, I want to say it was some violent crime. I can't remember since it wasn't my team. Uh, and he's driving to the next, uh, the next site to do another job and ended up getting into a really horrific car wreck, um, where he ended up you know, essentially driving into the back of a tractor trailer that was broken down on the side of a really narrow, uh, kind of dangerous two lane highway. Um, he had a horrific wreck. Um, and so we're all at the office that day. And I remember getting a call from one of our old TFOs who was a, he, he's still a state trooper. Um, he's a sergeant now. And we end up getting a call of like, Hey, we're out here on a wreck. Um, does one of your guys drive, you know, such and such vehicle he was driving? Like, no, that's we're at the office right now. We're not operational today. Uh, he's like, well, he's got a vest on that says U.S. Marshals. Um, we like for the life of us, we don't know what's going on. And over the next like five to ten minutes, we start getting calls and piecing together what happened. Um, and so he was assisting the South team, who does the same, you know responsibilities we do in southern mississippi they were out there covering one of their cases um and he was going to the next site with them so we're figuring out everything that's going on we're talking to like the initial trooper that responded and it's not it's not looking good um so we get some folks out there some folks were already out there um we get some folks going and we figure out that it was jared um and he's i mean we don't know the extent of his injuries, but it's it's not it's not looking good. Uh, so my partner Jack and I immediately go over to the hospital as they're life lighting him, and we're there to we're there when he comes into the ER um, to just figure out what's going on because we had heard it's not good, but um, you don't know you don't know what that means. Like you don't know 
what the the physical situation is. So we get there when he comes into the uh, ER, and it's bad. I mean, it is the most horrific accident I've ever seen. Uh, it was so bad I almost didn't recognize him at first. Um, and so we're there, and then we're navigating, like, is he going to make it? Is he not going to make it? You know, what are we doing here? We've got his family that's down in Louisiana. Um, you know, people are immediately going out to the to the wife because um, he's got two kids, too. They're immediately going out to the wife to notify her and bring her up there. I mean, they're throwing her in a car and saying, hey, we're getting you to the hospital. And I've had a lot of, like, things I really wouldn't want to do in my life, especially with the CERT team. But like the last thing, I'm so grateful that I've never had to be the person that goes to notify the spouse and like, hey, you're coming in a car. We're driving three hours right now to go see your husband. And we don't know what the situation on the ground is. We don't know if he's going to make it, if he's not going to make it. Navigating that has got to be absolutely horrific. Um, so I'm there at the hospital and I've just become the, you know, I've become the primary on this call just because it was in my AOR. Um, you would never make the primary somebody that knew the the victim. You'd never do that. But it was just, it is what it is. I'm there. I mean, I'm five minutes, my office is five to 10 minutes from the hospital. Um, so I've now become the primary and we get, we're, we're navigating this, you know, I'm trying to navigate the cert, cert response you know, chief level, uh, headquarters level stuff, as well as just getting everything prepped for the wife to get there. Um, and the wife gets there and I just, I take her, I didn't know her personally, uh, until that event. Um, you know, I'd known of her, but I didn't know her and I'm walking her into the ER to see her husband. Um, and just the physical shape he's in was the absolute worst thing I've ever had to do in my life. Um, just taking this taking this woman to see her husband that's got these horrific injuries and probably not something we're supposed to do, but I knew Jared was a Christian um, and pretty outspoken about it. So, you know, I, I don't really care if this is right or wrong, but I asked her if, you know, before we went in there, if we could pray, um, and we did. And just before we walked her in there, and I was probably in a worse shape than she was. Um, I didn't let go of her hand. Um, but having to navigate that was just horrific. I wouldn't wish that on the worst enemy. Um, but I was all, and the thing I say about it is I was incredibly grateful that I was able to be there for that. Um, just to show him the honor that he deserved and show his wife the honor that she deserved. Just absolutely horrific thing. Um, and so we've got the spouse there, and then we're trying to get his family in from all over the country. Uh, they did, the technical operations group in the U.S. Marshal Service did the most outstanding job. I mean, they put people on planes. They had people at people's houses, as well as the CERT team, obviously. Um, they had people at go to their houses, pick them up, get them on planes, and get them there, you know, anywhere within a few hours to the next morning. Um, using government resources that, you know, whatever they could find to, to make it happen. Um, so outside of the wife, 
you know, I think it was that same night, but a few hours later, his mom gets there and I've got to do it all over again. I'm walking his mom in there and doing the same exact thing. So back to back, you know, six hours apart, maybe walking in the spouse as well as the mom to see Jared, who's just, you know, he's, he's not, he's in a, you know, coma, obviously. Um, but he just is in a, I've never seen a human body like that. Um, he's the dude fought. He did not want to go. Um, and he didn't go for like days, but I mean, he is, it was a horrific, horrific scene. Um, that's a lot for you to absorb Chris as a, as a coworker, a friend, um, having to see someone you're close to be in that, that shape. And, take the burden that was taking on the responsibility of uh, being a servant yet again and, and, and taking care of his family. Yeah, That's yeah. a lot for and you that's to take all that, That's all that matters is that the family is taken care of in that event. That's the only thing that matters is that the wife is never alone. You know, they're, I think their kids came up the next day. I can't, I can't remember all. It's such a blur at this point. I can't remember all the specifics. Um, but making sure the kids, the wife, the family are all taken care of, that's that's all that matters. Um, you know, we that was actually my second daughter's birthday that day, and we had gone to the hospital uh, initially, and I it was in before the wife showed up, before we knew his, like, full condition on whether or not he was going to make it, I went home to see her for, like, 30 minutes um, for her birthday. And then, you know, kind of gave her a hug. And she was, you know, little at the time. She's four now. So she's would have been the, their third birthday then. Um, got to see her uh, briefly. And then I got a call from my, my boss, who's a great guy. Um, he was like, hey, you need to get back there. I'm like, okay, you know, it's give the kids a hug. Uh, my folks were in town. Thank God. Every time my folks are in town, something horrific happens. Uh, but they're in town. So they're able to, you know, be with my wife and the kids and celebrate the birthday. But it's just like, it doesn't matter. We're, you know, this is, we're going. Um, and just people don't see that stuff when it's like, like, I'm not saying that, Oh, good on me. You know, I dropped my family responsibilities, but it's like, that's what you have to do. Um, so just run out of the birthday, uh, get back down there in time for the wife to show up, uh, dealing with the mom, getting the kids in the next day, getting his dad and uh, the dad's wife, um, getting everybody in there, the extended family, you know, folks from all over the country that were, you know, his best friends were getting everybody in um, essentially so they can say their goodbyes um, while he's on life support. And Jared was such a to to his character. He's such a hero that even they kept him on life support so long because he was an organ donor. Um, and I don't want to screw up the specifics of this, but even through his organ donation, he saved a life. Um, some I can't remember if it was a kidney or a liver or a heart, um, but one of the organs he was able to pass on. They, they arranged it. That's why he had to stay on life support so long was it so they could do the organ donation and save another life. And I'd never been through an organ donation before. And, I mean, you've got a marshal service medic um, who's a guy named Jeremy who's another just absolute rock star who's not on the CERT team, but he's with Jared throughout that entire process. He's in the room as they're doing the um, the organ donation. And it's just like 
the level of compassion and care that these folks are doing to honor Jared and to be with him um, throughout that entire process. And the hospital staff, this was during COVID. So you are not allowed to have, you know, I think you're allowed to have like one person with us and one person with, you know, uh, whoever's in the hospital. And we just bulldog them and they dropped everything for us. You know, you've got the security guards coming around telling us to pull our masks up and you can only have, you know, these so many people in the halls. And it's like, no, we're, we're not, we're not doing that. Um, not for this. And they just pulled out the red carpet to make sure. I mean, that was the, the UMMC and Jackson just pulled out every stop they could um, to help us in that situation. And just seeing the level of respect there through the ICU, through the ER, through the organ donation, they do an honor walk when they do the organ donation where they will pull them out of ICU to go down towards essentially the, the prep uh, to do surgery. And they'll line the walls. We had uh, local law enforcement come in, some of the partner agencies, anybody. Like, we put a call out to everybody, um, whoever can come in for this. And I was just astounded. And I I shouldn't have been because I'd been there six years. But just the, the, the law enforcement community in central Mississippi is just so, so tight. Um, just seeing the level of people that didn't know him, they would come out there to honor him was just... So amazing. That's um, inspiring. Um, <clears throat> can you talk about the the funeral, uh, getting him buried in Slidell? Yeah, Western this Cemetery? was actually really cool. And without delving into politics, the, the governor of Louisiana, uh, to my knowledge, before this event was not, you know, he was on the uh, kind of the left side of the fence and probably not someone you would associate with being like heavily pro-law enforcement. Um, I, th- I think it's... Governor Edwards, if if I'm correct, um, but uh, Jared was a Jared was a, a veteran. He was in the U.S. Army Old Guard, which is actually really cool. Um, they're they've got a bunch of responsibilities, but one of the things they do is, um, you know, they do um, Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. They do a lot of the ceremonial and honor responsibilities with the U.S. Army. Um, and Jared was part of that unit, and we'll go in depth as to into some of the stuff he did there that was part of the funeral that was really cool. Um, but so they, they he wanted the, the family wanted him to be buried at a veterans uh, cemetery, and you don't just get buried in a veterans cemetery. There's a there's a wait list for something like that. You know, it's anywhere from weeks to months, and I don't know who it was called the governor, and that governor got him a spot to be buried there in a few days. And just seeing that, the outpouring of support there was absolutely just astounding. Chris, there's a lot of uh, tradition when it comes to military and law enforcement and uh, firefighter, for any first responder, the ceremonies. Can you tell the listener... um, about the riderless horse yeah so getting into that for the funeral what we did with jared um was we after the organ donation they arranged a transport and all of the local agencies did a really good job it was another one of those things where in central mississippi we had um a really good communication network with a lot of the local agencies um we had an kind of an investigators network where i was able to put out on there like hey this um this transport is happening and probably a hundred different folks from 
20 different agencies showed up to help escort the body uh, with the with the state troop where Jared um, down to Louisiana to, to the funeral home down there. So you've got all these different agencies that are showing up and lying in the sidewalk, um, getting Jared loaded up, um, getting him down there. And then they're running, you know, the full-blown escort with the Mississippi Highway Patrol down there, handing them off to Louisiana Highway Patrol um, or LSP. And getting him down to the funeral home and then um, getting all, all of that arranged and getting the family's wishes, getting everything that the family wants. Um, I The incident management team had come in for that and they're handling some of the, because it's a line of duty death, um, they're handling the vast majority of the logistics, which is great for us because then we can focus on the family, um, which is really supposed to be our main responsibility the other stuff we just did out and you do out of necessity. So the incident management team is there navigating the heavy lifting as far as just um, getting the funeral arrangements ready to go. And so we get down there and, and they do the full blown line of duty death funeral for Jared, which was outstanding. Um, it was, I can't remember the town it was in, in Louisiana, but it, there was a, a great showing, great level of respect. Um, and then after after the funeral, they go to the gravesite, which is where the riderless horse comes in. So one of the one of the things they do occasionally at law enforcement and, and military funerals, um, they'll have a riderless horse, which is led by you know a, a single soldier or a f- single law enforcement officer, and it is a horse that's riderless um, in full you know full the horse is fully dressed out, and there's um, they'll put boots backwards in the stirrups. Um, to represent, you know, the 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 team, the team or the um, military group has lost their leader, and so they lead the horse, uh, just showing that there is it, it exemplifies that there's a, a void that is now um, created, lacking, you know, lacking that leader. Um, and one of the cool things about Jared that he would never, I didn't find out about this till after he died, was during Ronald Reagan's funeral, um, when he was part of the U.S. Army Old Guard, he was um, the soldier that, that led Reagan's horse during that funeral procession. And so it's, I mean, you can Google that photo, Reagan riderless horse, and you see these beautiful pictures of Jared in his, you know, um, uniform leading Reagan's horse during that procession. And it's just absolutely um, impressive. That's an incredible sight. It's beautiful. I mean, it's such a representation of just, of, of service and, and, uniform it's it's incredible it's an incredible and sight. so one of the things they did knowing that was um at the internment you know after the funeral i was completely unaware they were even going to do this they had jared's daughter lead a ride or lead a riderless horse um to the grave site and just how powerful that was to see two generations uh, a daughter as well as her father having done that to honor, you know, both Reagan as well as Jared was just one of the most powerful things I've ever seen in my life. How did that make you feel? Uh, words can't express, you know, I've got both those photos in my office. Um, just to remember that, 
you know, and one day I'll be able to explain, you know, one day I'll have that moment when I can go through with my own kids and show them some of those photos and explain to them, you know, on a deeper level than a four-year-old or a six-year-old can grasp um, and explain that to them and show that to them. And it's something that, you know, I'll be able to use as an example of how we should honor other people for the next generation. Chris, the emotional weight of this program, um, I was talking a little, a little bit off air about the, just, just dipping my toe into the wellness unit. I'm starting to see that the emotional weight, how does that affect you? Yeah, so kind of like I, I explained earlier, you go into these situations where people are carrying these hundred pound suitcase bags, um, and they, they can't carry them and you do everything you can to take that weight from them. Um, it's very temporary. You're not permanently taking it away, but even if it gets them 20 minutes, an hour, a night, um, you're trying to take everything you can, but that baggage definitely, um, that baggage definitely becomes your baggage. And the more and more of those that you do, the, the, the longer you're carrying that weight. Um, but one of the things that the CERT program does, it's really really well done is they'll have rotating teams that come in. So there'll be the initial team that comes in on something like a line of duty death for the first week. And they're handling the immediacy, uh, the, the immediate response. And then when the second team comes in, they actually have a debrief for those people before they go back home where they debrief the people that were doing the debriefing. And it allows you on some level to have a little bit of um, that wake weight taken off by other people and then they debrief the second team as well which is really smart um because you can't release these people back into the wild with all of the stress they've taken on they don't take all of it because you're going to carry it with you for the rest of your life um but it's you know it's it's uh, it becomes a weight that you carry and the more and more you do of those i kind of think it's a really good idea to you know, you, you get rotated off every, you know, after your month, but it's probably a good idea every few years to kind of have them just take a, take a step back. Um, and that's what I've, I've done now. Um, you know, I'm no longer on the team at the moment just, uh, because of some new work responsibilities and having three kids six and under, um, I'll rotate back on hopefully at some point, but, Right now, I'm able to focus on family and career and just take a, a, a kind of a much-needed break from that. Yeah, you've earned it, Chris. I mean, it's everything you've already explained and some of the things you have not even sp- spoke of today uh, that you've carried. Can you talk about introverted versus extroverted people doing this yeah, type absolutely. of work? Yeah, um, I consider myself, despite the fact that I'm on a podcast talking for like an hour and a half, uh, I consider myself a very introverted person, um, especially growing up in like New England. Like we're, you know, being an introverted person from New England, like it, you got to work hard to get inside the circle. Once you're in the circle, you're in. Um, but being an introverted person going into those situations where you've got to become like introverted people are capable of being extroverted. It is just an exhausting um, affair to go through that. So being an introverted person that's being forced to go through these because you care deeply about the people that you're there to help, um, it is just a weight. And you go like, I would go home, you know, you work, you end up working like 12 to 16 hour shifts doing these things. And you go back to the hotel room after and it's just like, 
I don't want to drink. I don't want to go hang out. Like they would always try and do debriefs after. It was like, dude, I don't want to do a debrief. I want to go sit in my hotel room and have quiet. I want to go work out. I want to put on my headphones and pretend you guys don't exist for an hour. Um, and it's just this exhausting thing. So learning how to navigate that, because some people are extroverted and they gain energy from doing these extroverted things versus like an introverted person. They, they're they emptying the tank and it's like, I need some peace and quiet to go and refill that tank so I can do it all over again the next day. Yeah. Does the, you get your motivation because it is out of character for you as you being an introvert. Uh, do you get your motivation just knowing you help someone? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the whole thing. It's like I, I didn't particularly want to rotate off the team now because you see the value uh, of what you're doing. Um, and you hear you hear from people later about the value, even if you don't think you did anything. Like you hear from people later that it was very, you know, meaningful that you showed their loved one respect in, the, in, that, um, in that situation. So, yeah, I mean – learning how to, I don't want to use the word like self-care, but learning how to take care of yourself so that you can do more of that is, it's a, it's a tricky thing to navigate. And it's even trickier when you have a, a close friend that's the add to the equation. Absolutely. Right? And then like we talked about before, you've got to also go back and have a, you know, healthy marriage and kids that you want to not bring you don't want to throw those bags on your kids or your spouse because they don't they didn't ask for that but they're along for the ride and sometimes they're hostages but they're along for the ride i think moving forward chris has given us ways to improve um a lot of agencies are establishing peer support groups it's a it's evolving and much needed but we have to learn from this we have to take these pieces and, and make these peer support groups healthier. Yeah, the, the, that's the departments need that the a law enforcement or any first responder career. It's a at least a two decade. That's the goals, right? To get to two two decades plus, and then you know that's in a lot of in a lot of first responders. They uh, this is their life. They they don't they they do, they do this, and then a lot of them don't know what to do after. There's not a lot of planning. But to make it through two decades plus, three decades plus career, uh, seeing all that you see and all the experiences, all the trauma that you're exposed to, and then whether you like it or not, the families, I'm really, I really am so glad you touched on taking care of the families because that is something we lacked. We've, we've not done a good job of. Yeah, we've left them out of the and loop. They'll come in. They'll come yeah. in and talk to the children sometimes too, if that's something they want. Um, which I've never had to do that, but they'll, you know, they'll take the time to uh, talk to the children too to make sure, like, like the spouses, that they're getting some level of care. Yeah, uh, ATO. Yeah, we provide the some of our confidential counselors. They not all of them because you know, it's a specialty to deal with the family. But some of the uh, the confidential counselors they they do specialize in uh, in, in like Barbara Crump you know she is she's fantastic Dottie Clack Dottie's you know Swiss Army knife in the, uh, the the mental health field but she can do it all but you know Doctor T 
there are so many that now are specializing in this. And Dr. T is really big on the couples workshops of, 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 of putting those uh, presentations out there for the first responders to because it's all symbiotic, right? It's not just you being a badass tactically and, and, uh, and some people cope. There's some people that cope the wrong ways, right? Uh, when it comes to work-life balance and work and life responsibilities, what approach do you take? And what, what advice could you give someone that, that's either on a peer support team or a part of a, a response team that they can they – can, take care of themselves and juggle all yeah, this. Yeah. And, and I don't claim that I do not have it all figured out. I don't think I've got the, the perfect response to that, but there's times when there's times when you have to be selfish and there's times when you have to pour into others. And when you go on these call outs, you have to do the, your entire mission is based around other people. But when you're not on the call outs, it, you need to be, doing what you can to take care of yourself and take care of your family. Um, and there's times when I have to be selfish and my wife is very accommodating, understanding that like if I've got to go get an hour workout for the day, she, she might want me to be home, but like she understands that that's something we're going to do for our overall, you know, health and wellness as a family or emotional, you know, well, cause like she doesn't want me to be home when I'm just a hothead and, you know, need to go blow some steam off from everything I've carried for the day. But it's also one of those things where it's it's a delicate balance where when I'm home, I need to be home. I can't bring my work. And I bring my work. I physically work from home a lot. So being present and 100% dialed in for my kids is something that I, I'm, I need to work on better to manage that well so when i'm home i am there for them and i'm not responding to stuff on my computer or responding to stuff on my cell phone because every time the cell phone rings i pick it up um learning how to balance that be present as a father be present as a husband but also be you know an outstanding hardworking employee and then in the cert realm like when i was doing that be present at the drop of a dime to pick up bags and go halfway across the country to love on another family when they need it in their moment of need. I am so glad. I've been wanting to get you back on here for over a year now and you live in out of state and I, this, this is the only, I haven't seen you since we recorded last, right? I think so. Wow. So you're a fan of this uh, podcast, yes. of course, and you, you're always, we're always texting back and forth and you're giving feedback and advice and I, and I, and I value what you tell me. So now that you have Misty and I here and you have the mic and you're, you got us cornered. Be the voice. Yeah. Be the voice. What can we do to make this better? And what would you like us, what would you like this for us to do? I, I love it. And I was thinking about this on the way down here is just, I don't, I know you hear it a lot. Like you get people that text you and, you know, or call you and say, especially having like administrative level chief support now, just how important it it is. But this, this podcast and this getting the diversity of folks that come on here is one of the better things I've seen and going on a 17 year law enforcement career. Um, This is important. And I'm very grateful you guys are doing this because you've got people from all ends of the spectrum that are coming in. Um, And I I, I honestly wouldn't change a thing. Like there's some of the podcast episodes that I've listened to that I I wouldn't think I'd get a huge takeaway from and you listen to them. And it's like, man, this is this is really important for people to hear. And I bullied my wife into listening to some of the episodes. Thank Um, Thank you. 
you know, and I think everybody can take something from them. And I'm really happy you guys are doing this because you, you know better than I. You've got people from all over the country uh, and outside the country that have reached out to you saying how important it is. Um, and just to, you know, like you touched upon before, the, the, the big lie is that when we're going through something, we're going through something alone and that nobody else is going through this and I'm, I'm all alone. And I don't have anybody I can reach out to for support. And you've got these p- diversity of folks that come in and talk about these very abnormal situations that people are going through and how to, you know, how to walk through that and how to respond appropriately, good and bad, um, you know, with some of the things you can do right and some of the things that we've done wrong. Like, I, I've done a lot of things wrong. Um, but just normalizing those experiences so that people know that when they're going through something like this, they're not alone. There's a whole community of people that have gone through this and are going to go through it. And then the responsibility of when you've gone through something like that. Like, I see, I view myself as having a responsibility for folks that are coming up behind me when they go through something that I I have to do what I can to, you know, help them, uh, the good and the bad, how how to navigate that appropriately. I think it's a perfect way to wrap it up, man. Um, Again, you're a treasure to this profession, and in, in your your passion for service is, is uh, inspiring to me as a friend and, and a peer. And I can't wait for the listeners to hear your second act. And it's heavier than the first, and but I think it's needed. And I'm going to be borrowing a lot of your practices and, and your vision on, on uh, supporting our peers because we need it now more than ever thank you for your service and thank you for your time for coming in and uh and supporting us and supporting the ato and and in all of your peers and law enforcement and first responders across the country yeah thanks for making us better thanks joe thanks misty hey brother hey sister i'll never give up on you Mrs. A. Mister, I'll see this all the way through. No matter how far the sun and the moon, I'll never give up on you.
I'll never give up on you. 